This is Bill Newman, WHMP. Welcome to the show, and this is our regular time with State <coughs> Representative Mindy Dom. Mindy Dom is the State Representative for the 3rd Hampshire District, which includes Amherst, Bellum, and the 1st Precinct, that's half of Granby. Representative Dom, so glad you could be with us today, and I'm glad to see you looking, I think, relatively healthy, but you've been suffering from COVID, so tell us how you're doing. Thank you, Bill. Good morning. Um, I have to say I've been recovering from COVID. I suffered for a couple of days, but was able to get I'm eligible for the medicine, the Paxlovid combination. And so um, I wasn't suffering too much, but it is lingering um, and I'm trying to shake it off. And you can hear my voice and I'm sorry to the listeners that my voice is even scratchier and deeper um, than it usually is. Um, I wanna take the moment to say that um, I wasn't hospitalized with COVID. Um, I didn't have serious illness, um, and I believe that's because I'm fully vaccinated and boosted. And so I wanna encourage people to get fully vaccinated and boosted. COVID is still here. It's not over. Um, it's not done with us. And the more we take precautions to keep ourselves healthy and our communities healthy, the more we will end this. And so if you feel comfortable or need to wear a mask in public indoor spaces, please do so and do so with the knowledge that um, you are helping to protect yourself and others, and please get vaccinated and boosted. There are town clinics. There are ways to get it through CVSs and other drugstores. Um, we're not done with this yet. I have a question for you about this from a policy point of view, which is I do note, although I'm getting numb to it too, uh, the number of deaths from COVID every day, and there are still hundreds. On, yep. And that's a reality. The other reality is people seem to be acting and living their lives as if this pandemic is over and i'm having a really hard time uh, squaring that circle yeah me too and I, I have to say it's not only because um when you factor in the number of people who have are continuing to die from it but the number of people who are suffering from long covid and being disabled by long covid is also pretty staggering and we need to do a better job of actually not only caring for those folks, providing them with services, but counting those numbers of people so that we can like shake ourselves out of the, um, the, the denial or the impatience or the exhaustion that's coming with facing the pandemic. I'm having a hard time with it also, Bill. Um, in the, I'd say before I got um, sick, I had heard from about a handful of constituents like in a very short period of time who were experiencing long COVID with a range of concerns that they had that they were bringing to my attention. And I think that for people who are experiencing long COVID, which is basically symptoms past, I think, 12 weeks uh, after your infection, and also people who are disabled, but not necessarily with COVID, treating this like it's over um, and moving on is sort of disrespectful to the people who are still facing risks from COVID, um, serious risks from COVID, the immune compromised, people with long COVID, um, and I, I think we have to do a better job of um, not getting so exhausted by the pandemic and paying attention to the people who are still affected by it. So last question on this for you. Is this an issue that requires a, a different or in, improved or increased policy response from Beacon Hill? Is this something that now again lies primarily with the uh, Center for Disease Control. Mm -hmm. Who's, who has responsibility for this? This is such a good question. I think it's everybody. I think it's still an all hands on deck. You know, somewhat 
the state is somewhat, I think, handcuffed to what the CDC, the federal government does. And quite frankly, I have been very disappointed in the CDC. And as a former AIDS educator and HIV outreach worker, it pains me to say that because the one thing that at one point in the AIDS epidemic that we could count on was accurate information from the CDC um, and a, a very strong messages around prevention, which I think we're not getting now on COVID. I think we're getting this, you know, just get vaccinated and boosted that's, and wash your hands. They won't even say the word mask. And I'm not sure why, maybe it's political, maybe it's because they think the public doesn't have an appetite for it. Guess what? That's not the job of public health. The job of public health is to create the messaging that gives us the appetite to practice prevention. So in some ways, the Department of Public Health and the state are really sort of um, relying on the CDC to provide them with the information that they can then move forward. But I definitely see that there's a role for the state here to either uh, forge its own path in a lot of ways and also around communication services and treatment. And I'm going to be looking at that very closely with colleagues um, and with the um, new administration, hopefully, so that we can really uh, restore not only Massachusetts' role as a primary public health advocate, but, in, but make sure that our services and treatment reflect that. There's a lot we could be doing. You know, some of this reminds me of the beginning of the AIDS epidemic when people were uncertain about all the different ways people could experience HIV in terms of it being a syndrome. And so some folks stayed away from wanting to say, this is what's happening. And we have to restore sort of our confidence that we can understand what's going on and respond and still live our lives. Like we can do all three. We, it's not a trade-off. It's not this um, false um, equivalent, you know, kind of comparison. So um, I think there is a role. The answer, the short answer to your question is there's definitely a role for policy, communication, better communication, improved treatment and services on both the state and the federal level. And although the state has been waiting for the feds to take the lead, perhaps, there are a lot of areas we don't have to wait. We are speaking with State Representative Mindy Dom. Representative, I'd like to turn to the politics or other politics of today, if I might. Uh, there are state races and local races I need to hear your views on. And then we're going to turn to the ballot questions, which I know our listeners are really interested in. But first, a local race that is of importance, the Governor's Council race. And I'd appreciate your talking to our listeners about that first, and then we're going to review each one of the ballot questions. But Thank you. The, the, the Governor's Council race. Thank you so much, Bill. So as you know, the Governor's Council, as I understand it, and you probably have a better explanation than I do for it, um, they basically vote on the governor's nominations for judges, as well as I think the parole board and the probation, I think. Um, and so it's- And the Department the, of Industrial Accidents, workers' comp uh, representatives, uh, adjudicators as well. And uh, they have the responsibility of dealing with computations and voting on commutations as well. So right. it's, it's actually a significant uh, position. It's a significant constitutionally uh, established office in Massachusetts. Yeah, and it doesn't necessarily have to be a rubber stamp, which I've heard people say, because each person has their own vote. And we're voting um, for somebody to have their own vote and to use their own sense of priorities and their own sense of their vision of how they see the roles of each of those entities. And I think that's something to, for people to remember, is that the governor's council's representative is the way we want to see justice 
delivered in Massachusetts. And it's the person who's kind of our voice on all those different bodies of who should be on those bodies. So they don't necessarily have to have legal expertise. I, I believe this because that's what the governor's people are gonna be doing. They're gonna be vetting the people for these positions. But what the person really needs to have is our sense of justice and our sense of how we wanna see justice delivered and our aspirations for the judicial system. So recently I saw, and I was listening um, to the governor's council debate, and I was already a supporter of Tara Jacobs. But what I heard and what I read about that debate made me even stronger advocate for Tara's placement on this. Not only because I think in contrast to her opponent, who unfortunately has the last name of our beloved state senator, her opponent is John Comerford, no relationship to the state senator, the great state senator. No family relationship, no, no political relation relationship, nothing. no relationship, none, they nothing. couldn't be more different. Yeah, you could even maybe hypothesize that maybe they picked somebody with the state senator's last name to confuse us. I don't know if that happened, but no relationship to state senator Joe Comerford. Um, but when I heard and when I read about this debate, I thought we really have to start talking more about this position because I believe that um, the Republican uh, candidate for this race, whose name is very similar to our beloved state senator, um, has nothing in common with the voters, at least in my district, in the third Hampshire district. He talked about retribution and punishment, um, all the things in the judicial system that I think a lot of us feel we've been moving away from and, and being strong. And Tara Jacobs, who is the Democratic nominee for this position, really speaks to the aspirations that we have for the judicial system and for the way justice is viewed in the, in the Commonwealth. Um, she, sp she spoke, I think, really beautifully, and I really encourage people to like Google her name and read some of the articles about her and listen to her debate performance. But she spoke to the fact that the judicial system really speaks to our hope for people and not necessarily for, you know, like the punishment and like our aspirations. And I think if people, I don't want to really paraphrase her because I'm not the candidate she is, but I think this is a really important race. Um, it's more important than it usually it may be because the people who are running are on such extremes in terms of how they view the judicial system and as well as the other roles. Um, but I'm supporting and I have been supporting Tara Jacobs for this position and I am enthusiastically encouraging people to Google her name, listen to the debates, um, see if she speaks to your aspirations for the judicial system. Um, and for the other ways in which the governor's council operates. And if she does, please make sure that you vote for Tara Jacobs for governor's council, or I think it's listed on the ballot as just for council, and make sure you vote also for Joe Comerford for state senator. Um, and don't confuse that. Joe is not running for governor's council. She's running to be reelected as state senator, and we'd be lucky, and it'd be wonderful to have her continue to play that role. Um, but Tara Jacobs for Governor's Council. And we should note that the Governor's Council position here in Western Massachusetts is for all of Western Massachusetts. It's the eighth district, there are eight councilors, and never take for granted that people are going to vote. What we need is for everyone listening here to vote. And let me be clear, I did not support Tara Jacobs in the primary, but I am an enthusiastic backer of her and supporter of her 
her in this general election. It is really important that she be elected, and it's really important that John Comerford get nowhere near this position. That's my view. So we encourage, I encourage all of our listeners here today to participate, and I want you to know how enthusiastic I am about supporting Tara Jacobs. We are speaking with State Representative Mindy Dom, the representative from the 3rd Hampshire District. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to review all the ballot questions, which are so important. We're going to do that right after this. Stay with us. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. When it's happening here in the Valley, we're talking about it. We have a very unique and lethal combination of emboldened white supremacy in this country and unfettered access to guns. We need to keep talking about the intersection of white supremacy and guns. Guns are used in order to you know, elicit fear and power and control uh, by white supremacists. And it's not an issue that's going away easily. 101.5, 1400, and 1240. We are the Valley. We are WHMP. Fall is here, and I have two beers to help you celebrate the season. Hi, I'm Caleb Hiliadis, head brewer of Amherst Brewing. Our pumpkin ale is brewed with a delicious blend of spices, sugar, and real pumpkins. Blumeister Oktoberfest is our traditional German lager with a full and sweet body. Both beers are available at all Hangar Pub and Grill locations on draft and in 16-ounce cans in Amherst. Ask your server for a cinnamon sugar rim on your pint of pumpkin ale. Pumpkin ale cans and draft are also available across the entire state of Massachusetts. Stop in soon for a pint with us and a four pack to go. Life moves fast and kids move at the speed of life. Well, Franklin First is here to help you and your kids stay in control. With Franklin First Federal Credit Union's teen checking program, your teen can manage their money and stay on the go while you enjoy peace of mind. Conditions apply, so see your Franklin First professional for details and requirements. Or start at franklinfirst.org. Franklin First Federal Credit Union, member NCUA. I am Marco, and I am always been full of life, full of energy, and always on the go. At the age of 21, I was diagnosed with kidney disease. My life was saved by an organ donor. Receiving a life-saving organ put my life back into play, and I was able to move forward and make my dreams come true. Anyone can sign up to be an organ donor, whether you're 16 or 96. Be a hero. Be an organ donor. Register today. Register at registerme.org. Sponsored by New England Donor Services. Today, I'm convening this conference because I believe we can use these advances to do even more to make America stronger and a healthier nation, to achieve ambitious goals and hunger in this country by the year 2030. This is a big deal. The President of the United States just announced to the world that ending hunger and promoting better nutrition in this country is a national priority. I think that's a good plan, and I think we can do it. Meanwhile, our neighbors have to eat today. The Food Bank of Western Mass is there for the over 100,000 neighbors who rely on emergency food each month. And if you want to help support the Food Bank of Western Mass, you can join the March for the Food Bank 13 Thanksgiving week. The federal government is making moves when it comes to fighting hunger, and the Food Bank itself is making moves. From Hatfield to Chicopee, you can move with us locally as we march from Springfield to Northampton on day one, and Northampton to Greenfield on day two. March yourself, start a team, virtually march. Get involved, make some moves. Monty's March 13, making moves. Monday and Tuesday, November 21st and 22nd. Sign up now at montysmarch.com. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. We continue our conversation with State Representative Mindy Dom. Representative, I want to 
ask you some questions in your role, not as a legislator so much, but in your position as a community leader and a political leader here in our community. And I'd like to focus on the ballot questions because these are so very important. Let, let's, let's start with question four, if I might, because sure. this is a matter that you've been involved with, I know, for years now. Question four, will Massachusetts retain the Work and Family Mobility Act? The answer to that, in my opinion, I'm not trying to make any, uh, there's no question about this in my, the answer to that question is yes. But, and I know that you support that position as well. Explain why. Thank you, Bill. I absolutely support this position. And I was honored to vote for it twice on behalf of my constituents this past year. Um, as you may know, that Massachusetts legislature passed the Work and Family Mobility Act. The governor vetoed it, so we had a chance again to vote for it. Um, and I support it on many, for many reasons, which I'll talk about, not the least of which is that my constituents support it. Um, but what I'd like to talk about with this referendum when I'm talking to constituents right now is I had my opportunity to vote yes on this. Now it's your opportunity. Tell us um, what it does. What it basically does is it says that um, any qualified Massachusetts resident, meaning qualified that you pass a driver's test and that you're over the age of 18, et cetera, et cetera, is able to get a driver's license and drive safely on our roads, regardless of their immigration status. It does not make Massachusetts the only state to do this. It actually makes Massachusetts, I think, the 17th or the 18th state to do this. So we're not the first one at this, um, uh, at this dance. We're actually kind of late if you look at the uh, reality. The other states that have done it have not had any issues that have been brought up to scare people away from it. Um, and in fact, it's made their roads safer because it means that then everybody who's on the road has an opportunity to get a driver's license, insurance, et cetera. And what we know is that people need to, especially in Western Massachusetts, people need to drive to get to work, to get to the doctor, to get to the supermarket. And they know how to drive regardless if they have a license, but getting a license actually makes our road safer because then we know that people are following the rules. They understand Massachusetts laws, et cetera. You know, I, I don't and they're, think and they're, in, and they're insured. I mean, we should point and, out that, right, in, right. Uh, and, that the road safety statistics from a number of these states that have passed laws similar to the Massachusetts Work and Family Mobility Act, the statistics show safer roads. Safer roads and families being able to stay together. Because, you know, in Amherst, I feel like we have a special kind of connection to this, like Northampton in some respects, because, you know, we were providing a sanctuary um, for Lucio for a long time, who got caught because he didn't have a driver's license and was threatened with being deported as a result of not having a driver's license. Stupid right. After community. years and years and years of being part of the community and working and raising a family and his kids in school and being so much a f part of the fabric of the community, they wanted to deport him because he got caught driving allegedly without a license, right. which he wouldn't be eligible for until. Right. Exactly. Now. Exactly. So, you know, this has a special meaning for me in that respect, because we know somebody and we were supporting somebody and we were respecting somebody and their family who was facing great legal harm as a result of this law not being in effect. <clears throat> so I understand that this law has a remedial effect in addition to allowing people to drive. And you know, when I went to go speak 
I think about um, two years ago, <coughs> excuse me, before um, the pandemic, I went, I used to go into the classrooms at Center for New Americans and talk with their students. Now I do it via Zoom, but before it was in person. But I recall somebody, a class, um, one of the students said that she had come from Illinois and she wanted to know why she couldn't get a license in Massachusetts and she could in Illinois. So think about that. Massachusetts is behind states like Illinois in giving driver's license to immigrants because of whatever, you know, xenophobia, um, a, a vestige of like hatred. I don't know what it's from, but most of the things that I've heard that speak against this aren't true and they play on people's fears. And a lot of their fears are fears around xenophobia. Um, and I think this is our opportunity to strike back basically. And so I like to say, like I said earlier, I've had my opportunity to vote for this um, in the legislature. Now it's this, um, residents of Massachusetts turn. And in that respect, you vote yes on question four because you're voting for the law that's currently in effect. I just wanna point that out. We passed this law before the summer. Um, it was actually supposed to go into effect, I think in the summer of 2023, but we're in this period where it's been passed and there's supposed to be a kind of a changeover. Um, and so now it's the voters turn to say, yeah, that's the vote that we wanted to take. And it's super important for Western Massachusetts voters to overwhelmingly support this bill. First of all, we live in an area that's really um, not as rich in public transit options as other parts of the state, meaning that people rely on their private vehicles more than other parts of the state. And we see that we, we benefit from our immigrant neighbors being able to drive to work all the time. Um, plus, we have a large agriculture sector, which is also um, in large part due to people who are immigrants working with our farmers. And so we have a stake in this that's huge. And I really hope that everybody will join me to vote yes on question four. Representative Dom, we just have a couple minutes left. Uh, question one is the question regarding the fair share amendment. Will there be a, a tax, an additional tax of 4% for adjusted gross income of over a million dollars, not wealth of over a million dollars, income, adjusted gross income of over a million dollars each year. And I mean, it's it's really minimal, uh, but it would raise between one and a half and two billion dollars uh, for the state every year for education and for transportation. I know you're in favor of this. We're going to have Max Page on in just a couple minutes. Why don't you, so we can get the clip so we can use it, <laughs> hear, hear your position on, on oh my God. Question, my question, question one. Don't worry, we'll edit it. We'll make it sound pretty good. Um. <laughs> <laughs> thanks, thanks, Bill. Well, you know, this is one of been this has been one of the big pleasures as a rep is being able to vote on this in the House so that it could advance to go for as a ballot question. The reason why it has to go before the public is because it's a constitutional amendment. I really want to stress that in our constitution we have a flat tax, which means it's not it doesn't increase based on people's income, and so this would amend that for incomes of over a million dollars and would designate those funds specifically, as you indicated, for transportation and education. Here again, um, I can't stress this enough. Um, West, Massachusetts as a whole, but our region specifically, um, needs this amendment. We need it because, first of all, the transportation funds aren't to one thing or another. So it could go towards public transit, it could go to roads, highways, et cetera. 
But also I wanna stress, this is one of the ways that we're gonna be able to restore funding, not just to um, elementary education, which we've already made a commitment to, to as a legislature, but to higher education. And so this really, these are the funds that we need to drive down the cost of tuition, to help our campuses take care of deferred maintenance, to make sure that our professors and our associate professors are being treated fairly. This is the way we do this by raising funds and by raising revenue that then can support education. And in Massachusetts, we're, we like to think of ourselves as the education state, but we've been pretty stingy with our money for education, especially for higher ed. Um, and this is the way that we open up the opportunity for higher ed. Now, as the rep for Amherst and for the flagship campus, I admit completely, this is my bias. Um, I have, I represent two other private institutions, right? Hampshire College and Amherst College. I love them. I hope that they do well, but we have an obligation to Massachusetts residents to support public higher education. This isn't an either or. Right now, higher ed is part of what people need in some fields to move ahead. It's not, um, a, it's not an option. And so if once we see that, it's really not K through 12 is our responsibility, it's K through 16. And this, this particular referendum will give us the resources to live up to that commitment. I'm excited about this. I hope that- Well, um, technology has been me. with us so well. Here, connection lost. Are you there, Bill? I guess not, but it's a, uh, I hear coughing. Is that you, Newman? Well, perfect time to take a break, I guess. We'll be back, <coughs> hopefully, with Bill Newman, who doesn't, I think, know he's still on the radio. This is coughing. Bill Newman, WHMP. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Congressman Jim McGovern will be in Northampton today to honor a prominent local lawmaker who died three years ago. Longtime State Representative Peter Cocut will be honored during a ceremony at Northampton's train station at 4.30 this afternoon. Cocott served in the legislature representing the Northampton-based 1st Hampshire District from 2002 until his death in 2018. An East Longmeadow man with 10 outstanding warrants was arrested yesterday morning. Around 1.50 a.m., officers on Armory Street found a city sign that was knocked down. A vehicle with damage was found nearby with 27-year-old Nathaniel Afonso of East Longmeadow sitting in the driver's seat. Afonso was arrested but allegedly resisted, hitting two officers in the hands and wrist area with the handcuffs. Afonso had nine outstanding warrants from Palmer District Court, including one where two officers were assaulted and one warrant from Springfield District Court. Greenfield City lawyers have filed an appeal against the judge's denial for a new trial in the case of Greenfield and Police Chief Robert Haig versus former Officer Patrick Buchanan. Judge Mark Mason issued a memorandum stating there was no miscarriage of justice in the trial and the jury's verdict in May. The city's appeal was filed Thursday and is also appealing the award for Buchanan's legal fees, the denial to obtain the recording of the voir dire of Chief Haig and Lieutenant Dodge, and other decisions made in the case. Now both legal teams will have to write a statement on the trial, then there will be a hearing and then up to six months for a decision on whether or not this will go to appeals court. Partly to mostly sunny today, it'll be cooler but still pleasant, a high of 54 to 58. Mostly clear tonight, evening temperatures in the 40s, overnight lows of 26 to 32. Sunny tomorrow, a high of 58 to 62, low 60s in a sun cloud mix for Sunday. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 1015 WHMP. This News Minute is brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. 
Yo soy Johan Rashi Vega con la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media. Elon Musk tomó el control de Twitter y destituyó al director ejecutivo, al director financiero y al asesor general de la compañía, dijeron el jueves por la noche dos personas familiarizadas con el acuerdo. No se dijo si se había firmado todo el papeleo para el acuerdo originalmente valorado en 44 mil millones de dólares o si el acuerdo se cerró. Las salidas se producen solo unas horas antes de la fecha límite establecida por un juez de Delaware para finalizar el trato el viernes. Amenazó con programar un juicio si no se llegaba a un acuerdo. Elon Musk intentó calmar a los desconfiados anunciantes de Twitter el jueves, un día antes de la fecha límite para cerrar su adquisición de la plataforma de redes sociales, diciendo que está comprando la plataforma para ayudar a la humanidad y no quiere que se convierta en una plataforma gratuita para todo el paisaje infernal. El mensaje parece tener como objetivo atender las preocupaciones entre los anunciantes, la principal fuente de ingresos de Twitter, de que los planes de Musk para promover la libertad de expresión al reducir la moderación del contenido abrirán las compuertas a una mayor toxicidad en línea y ahuyentarán a los usuarios. Pero el jueves aseguró a los anunciantes que quiere que Twitter sea la plataforma publicitaria más respetada del mundo. Se espera que Musk hable directamente con los empleados de Twitter este viernes y se finaliza el acuerdo, según un memorando interno citado en varios medios de comunicación. En otras informaciones, el Comité de Medios y Arbitrios de la Cámara está listo para recibir las declaraciones de impuestos del expresidente Donald Trump en una semana después de que un Tribunal Federal de Apelaciones rechazó el jueves la solicitud de Trump de rechazar la publicación. La Corte Suprema aún podría intervenir si Trump apela. El presidente del comité, el representante demócrata de Massachusetts, Richard Neal, dijo en un comunicado que Trump trató de retrasar lo inevitable, pero una vez más la corte ha afirmado la fuerza de nuestra posición. Yo soy Johan Rashi Vega y esta fue la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media a través de WHMP. This News Minute has been brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. And this is our weekly segment with Max Page, your state you. He is the president of the Massachusetts Teachers Association. We still have with us State Representative Mindy Dom. We're going to turn to Max Page in just a minute because we want to talk about question, ballot question number one, the fair share amendment. Should people who make over a million dollars a year on the money in excess of the just Did we lose this connection again? Access over a million dollars a year in income, a 4% tax. Max, tell us, uh, well, first, we want to hear what Mindy Dom has to say about um, thanks, this and thanks, the other ballot questions quickly. Thank you. I just want to put in a plug that um, I'll be voting yes on all four questions. I'll be voting yes on question one, which is the fair share amendment. I'll be voting yes on question two which will make sure that a certain percentage, I think specifically 83% of our dental insurance payments will go to services and care and not dental bureaucracy. Um, and I strongly support people to um, review the, that referendum and think about it and try to come up with a way that you feel comfortable voting for it. I'll be voting yes on it. Um, I'll be voting yes on question three, which also helps my understanding small mom and pop shops around liquor stores and distribution. Uh, Massachusetts liquor distribution system is pretty uh, co overly complicated in my mind in anything that allows um, for less, uh, for more um, choice and also more support for our small guys, I'm favoring. And I'll also be voting yes on question four, which as we talked about earlier, is the uh, 
Work and Family Mobility Act. And I encourage everyone to read about it. If you have questions and you're my constituent, you want to know why I'm voting on those and you didn't hear earlier, please reach out to me. Um, the election is happening now in early voting um, and early voting continues till next week and then on election day, as well as mail-in voting. So you've got lots of options in Massachusetts. Please take advantage of it. Make sure you vote. Thanks, and, Bill. Yeah, and I'd just like to say, this is actually easy to remember. Just say yes. yes. I love it. Thank you, Nancy Reagan. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Mindy Dom, state representative from so the 3rd Hampshire District. Thank you. Let's, See you next month. Let's turn now to Max Page. Max, you've been in on this conversation. Your thoughts of where we stand? And I'd like to, in particular, to know this from you. There's been a lot of reporting recently about how Massachusetts does not easily pass a tax increase, even if it's on people who are essentially billionaires making uh, over a million dollars a year. Although the Fair Share Amendment is not a tax on wealth. It is not a tax on wealth. It is not a tax on wealth. It is a tax, a small tax on income over a million dollars in a year. That's all it is. And it's adjusted gross income. It's, it's more than a million dollars as a practical matter. So Max, where are we at? So we are 11 days away, Bill. I mean, it's an odd thing to say election day because of course um, many people have voted by mail and also um, early voting started last, uh, last Saturday. So uh, lots of people voted, but um, a lot more will be voting this week and then on election day, November 8th. So look, um, this is, uh, and yes, you, what you just said is really important that we have not in the past um, um, easily passed tax hikes, but this thing is different. We feel good about this because it is so clear, A, that it is taxing people who make over a million dollars in income, income a year. This is not the total value of retirement or a home. It is about your pay, your salary, or about any like gains you've made on stocks. It has to be a ton of money to be able to have those kinds of gains you sold on stocks to make over a million dollars. It's about 24,000 households in a state of three and a half million households, 24,000 people or homes, houses, uh, uh, households that would be potentially affected by this. The second half is so important. I think people are really, it's really resonating with people that it's dedicated that is in the constitutional amendment that we will be passing on November 8th, it says the money must go to public education, pre-K through higher ed, as Rep. Dom just said, um, pre-K through higher ed and roads, bridges, and public transportation. And there was an actually an important statement yesterday by um, Maura Healy, who's running for governor and is leading well in the polls. I will say that the Massachusetts Teachers Association has endorsed her for full disclosure. But she said something really important in an interview with uh, Jim Browdy. He said very pointedly, he asked her very pointedly, will you veto a budget, leg legislative attempts to kind of not allocate the money towards education and transportation? And she said emphatically, yes, I will vote veto that. In other words, if there's any kind of games, she said she's very clear as attorney general that the law says that that once it's in the Constitution, that money must go there. And he reiterated it and said, well, do you mean you'll it'll be an addition? And she said, yes, we need a sustained source of revenue for education and transportation. So 
um, if the if the polls say anything, she will be the next governor, and she has made crystal clear that when she's governor, the two billion dollars estimated from the fair share amendment question one um, will go to additional investments in public education and fixing and and uh, maintaining our roads, bridges, and public transportation. Yeah, I, I also have to say, Max, that in addition to the uh, future governor's pledge, I think it's really important that there is so much attention on this. People will know whether or not the, their vote is being fulfilled. But more importantly, and I don't mean to be Pollyannish about this, but state legislators take an oath to defend and protect the Constitution of the United States and the Constitution of Massachusetts. And the idea that state legislatures are going to flaunt their oath and their oath of office and their responsibilities and say, to hell with my constitutional obligations, I'll just do something else. I, I think that's a really jaundiced view. I mean, it, it just no way that this doesn't fulfill its purpose. If it and as we've it. said, Bill, I agree. And also this legislature has uh, last time it voted to put it on the ballot, voted 80% in favor of putting this on the ballot. They are eager to have the funds because they have shown they want to invest in education and transportation. You know, um, the MTA was central to a coalition that won passage of the Student Opportunity Act a few years ago, which will, once it's fully implemented, bring in an extra $1.5 billion into our public schools. And um, they did that with and they want to spend that money and this will guarantee that that can be absolutely fulfilled over the next several years. So Max Page, help me out on this. Uh, is there polling, a recent polling that can give us some uh, sense that the fair share amendment question one is in fact going to pass? Well, Bill, uh, uh, I will say that there is a um, public poll that just came out from the University of Massachusetts Amherst, where I teach, um, and I think it said the US, U.S. Amherst C, uh, CVB poll found that 59% of voters said they plan to vote yes on question one. Now, I will say I think it is actually much closer than that, personally. I think it is, um, you know, this just the history of these questions will be very closely decided, um, but certainly um, it's exciting to to see that there seems to be strong support for this. And so we're gonna push all the way through November 8th until <clears throat> 9 p.m. to make sure this passes. Last question for you on this, Max Page. Is there a way that listeners who say, right, I can't believe I haven't been participating in this. I wanna get involved now. What do they do? Where do they go? Very simple, fairsharema.com, <laughs> fairsharema.com slash volunteer. And there are dozens and dozens of uh, canvases and phone banks happening all all weekend and I know there's several that people can find in in Northampton for example but in all all throughout Western Mass there are events happening and it's a sort of a joyous chance to meet meet neighbors and around and advocate around a common goal which is passing this question that asks the very wealthiest less than one percent of people to, to pay a little bit more so that we can all have the schools and colleges and roads and bridges that we that we need and deserve give us the website again max where do we go if we want to it's participate and help fairsharema.com slash volunteer and you can put in your zip code and you'll find any number of activities max page is the president of the massachusetts association here to encourage us to vote yes on question one max page thanks so very much thank you bill
This is Bill Newman, WHMP. The Paul Parent Garden Club, every Sunday, 6 to 8 a.m. Brought to you by Winesick Nursery, locally owned and operated since 1954. Visit Mike, Amity, John, and the rest of the team at Winesick Nursery, Route 9 and Hadley, and online at winesicknursery.com. Hey everyone, it's Tina Marie, co-pilot of The Cambridge Connection. I'm also a certified credit counselor. For 25 years, I've been helping people have a better relationship with money while getting out of debt. Every Saturday morning at 9.30 a.m. right here on WHMP, join me, Gordon, and our variety of amazing experts who stop by to offer great advice navigating the daily financial maze of life. Whether it's time to buy or refi, Deb Jordan of Shamrock Home Loans joins Gordy and Tina Marie to share her best practices. What happens in high school stays in high school? Not quite. In fact, quite the opposite. What happens in high school has a deep and lasting effect. High school is a time of discovery of how you'll be in the world. At the Hartsburg School in Hadley, that means discovering more than the right answers to test questions. Hartsburg students take their science studies into the woods, for instance, or the garden, or goat barn. They study history through the lens of architecture, or art, or music. There's time to be young and curious and unhurried. High school isn't a race or a contest. It's a journey towards self-determination. Hartsbrook High School students learn they can handle adversity and cultivate an unwavering sense that they can take action in the world. Plus, they sing together. Schedule a visit anytime. Visiting day for current eighth graders is this Wednesday, November 2nd, from 8 a.m. until about noon. Spend time with students and teachers and see what high school at Hartsbrook is really like. Eat more kale, says the bumper sticker. Why assume I'm not eating enough kale? If you eat at Paul and Elizabeth's, there's always kale. There's the Caesar salad with kale, with romaine, or both. There's the vegetarian platter, vegetables sauteed to perfection, including kale. Or just order a side of sauteed greens. Some people treat kale like one of those good-for-you-but-no-one-really-likes-it things. Maybe those people have never been to Paul and Elizabeth's restaurant. Inside Thorns in Northampton. This week's Shop Tuesday is Caminito Steakhouse. This Tuesday at 9 a.m., Caminito releases certificates for their restaurant in Northampton. A fine Argentinian steakhouse offering sirloin gorgonzola, ribeye, steak tips, and grass-fed filet mignon with potato gratin. And this Tuesday, you save 30%. Caminito Steakhouse in Northampton, available this Shop Tuesday at 9 a.m. on the Shop 30 store at whmp.com. A little bit of hammering and a little bit of humoring. Today's Homeowner with Danny Lipford. Home improvement ideas and advice. Today's Homeowner with Danny Lipford. Sundays at noon, 1015, 1400, and 1240. WHMP. The beat goes on. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. The beat goes on. And this is Artbeat with our Artbeat correspondent, Donabelle Cassis, who has with her and us today two very special guests. Donabelle, the microphone is yours. Thank you, Bill. Good morning. What does it mean to make art? An exhibition at William Blizzard Gallery at Springfield College asks this question. And joining us today, are Jessica Poser, Associate Professor, Program Director, and Director of the Gallery, along with artist and founder of Habitat for Artists, Simon Draper. Welcome. 
Thank you. Thank you. Now, Simon, you use the idea of artist studio as catalyst. What is a habitat and what does it mean to you? The habitat is a six by six small studio that is modular and can be set up in a variety of places, uh, usually in a community, a small town on the street. It can also be located, we've located them in uh, parks along the Hudson uh, River. And uh, it's about uh, artists engaging with their community and the public having uh, an opportunity to engage with artists, um, you know, for a brief period. Now, how did you come up with this concept? I know you're an artist yourself. Was it uh, something that happened, an idea in your own studio or just you know, meeting up with the community? It, it goes back to uh, an influx of artists from uh, New York to the Hudson Valley. Um, I was then working um, in Beacon and I was aware that uh, there was a sort of disconnect um, because Deer, the museum, was opening just down the road from where I had a studio. And the community were being told, oh, this is great uh, for you, but they couldn't really see, well, what, you know, who are these people moving in? So I felt it sort of necessary uh, um, to sort of put artists in, in the forefront of the discussion and to sort of have them available because not everybody wants to walk into a gallery. It's somewhat like going back to church for some people. Um, <laughs> So I think it was sort of making that available and, and also for artists to get to know the community um, and also to take on contextual, you know, themes that might be outside their usual practice. Mm, mm. Now, the title of the show at the William Blizzard Gallery at Springfield College is called Inordinately Exuberant and Other Functions of and for Art. Now, I understand this exhibit shows an anthology spanning 15 years of the collective. Um, can you describe this for uh, all our listeners on the radio? Um, well, people who know me, uh, I'm a little uh, sometimes in their face about things. Uh, exuberant is one, <laughs> one adjective. Um, <laughs> it's, it's been interesting seeing it evolve and, and, and Jessica's sort of, uh, describe my process as rhizomatic, which is we sort of grow and ease ourselves into situations or are invited, but we don't necessarily always go looking or we don't always have funding. We don't always, so it's very much sort of on the surface, but sort of looking to um, manifest. And uh, when we do it though, we do it with, a, with, with, with full on gusto. So it's not something that is sort of half assed uh, it's, uh, anyway, um, <laughs> that one, that one's okay. That was okay. Okay. Yeah. Yes, we are. <laughs> no expletives, please. So Jessica, the, the, the gallery is enormous and I was looking at some of the images and can you just describe to us what's happening in that space? Well, it's really exciting and it's very sort of emblematic, I think, of the Habitat for Artists aesthetic and approach. You come into the gallery and the first space is really dedicated to being a kind of all-inclusive maker space where everyone is invited 
to come and hang out. There's tons of materials everywhere. There's photographs of um, past iterations of the project. There's even a little reading area where people can like sit in a comfy chair and, and look at art books. And then you have to actually walk through a habitat. So the, the six by six structure that Simon was talking about um, creates a kind of doorway through which you then enter the larger gallery space, which is a combination of the anthology, which is very exuberant. And then there's a collection of artwork by participating artists who've been part of the project over the last 15 years. So it shows this really nice interplay between the work that they've done as part of the collective, as well as their own private studio work, sort of creating mm. a dialogue in between those two modes of working, right? They're not necessarily exclusive of one another. Mm. Now, you don't have to be an artist to go into this space, right? Oh. No, I mean, I think that it's the whole feeling of it is very invitational. And I think that's mm -hmm. a big part of what HFA has, has been. It sort of operates kind of parallel to, but in important ways outside of the traditional art world uh, writ large in the sense that anyone who wants to um, experiment working this way, I think is, is welcome, wouldn't you say, mm -hmm. Simon? Most definitely. I think what, what's hard is that a lot of people feel excluded. And I think um, the art world per se acts in its own sort of, um, or under its own set of guidelines or laws. And I think part of the problem is it has very little to do with uh, creativity. And unfortunately, it is, is based on a commodification of the process and the object. And I'm actually less uh, concerned with uh, objects per se than the experience that both the artist and the viewer gains through from the medium of the object or the resultant thing so, so it, it's very different in that respect it's much more process orientated and and the studio is a metaphor for that process it's a place to go to create not uh, make uh, widgets <laughs> Well, I, I love the idea that you are democratizing art. That is something uh, near and dear to my own mission in um, my arts advocacy. Jessica, how long is this exhibit up and how can we see it? So it's open Monday through Friday, 9.30 to 4.30. Uh, the exhibit extends through uh, November 11th. So uh, definitely everyone is welcome to, to come on by. We're right on the Springfield College campus in Blake Hall on the second floor, right at the intersection of Alden and Wilbraham. Ah, okay. Well, I am so inspired by what I'm seeing. One last question, if you can, within the minute, Simon, what is the most uh, surprising thing that's come out of this program? For me, it's been um, the experience that the artists have had, um, and that's the that's the big, been the big thing, and, and, and we're actually collecting those. The experiences. The experiences that they've had and, and changed, and some have actually changed their uh, practice through being a participant in it. So cool, so cool. Jessica Poser, Simon Draper, thank you so much for what you're doing for the community and uh, expanding our minds. 
and perceptions. And thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for having us. Jessica, before you run, more information for those who want to go to a website before they come and see the exhibit. Is there one? Yeah, if you just look up the William Blizzard Gallery at Springfield College, you will be directed to all of the pertinent information. Thank you so very much. Donabel Cassis, Jessica Poser, Simon Draper, thank you all so very much. This has been Artbeat. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. The top-ranked Massachusetts Minutemen return to the ice at the Mullen Center this Friday for homecoming and a special hat trick-or-treat Halloween. All fans are encouraged to wear their Halloween costumes as the Minutemen take on Merrimack. Puck drops at 7 p.m. UMass hockey tickets can be purchased at umassathletics.com tickets. Or, if you can't make it, listen to all the action right here on WHMP, your home for UMass hockey. 1015-1400-1240 WHMP. The Northampton Community Music Center provides quality, accessible music education to more than a thousand members of the greater Northampton community. Hi, this is Jason Trotta, Executive Director of the Northampton Community Music Center. Our scholarship fund helps those with limited means access affordable music instruction and has never turned away a qualifying applicant in its 33 years of existence. To find out how you can help, Please visit our website at ncmc.net. Talk for Northampton and the Valley since 1950. WHMP Northampton. WHMQ Greenfield. A Northampton Radio Group Station.